All right, well, good afternoon. It's been a great day. Uh, awesome to hear the word and the exhortation from different guys, and uh, it's a privilege to be back to round off the, the teaching time. Steve, I'm glad you're here. Um, and you made it. I'm going to try not to put you to sleep. <laughs> I'm going to try not to put anybody to sleep as it's tough at this time of the day after listening to talks all day. All right, well, we're back this, this afternoon, and what we're going to talk about is continue talking about the importance of discipleship and the, the mission the church is given uh, to make disciples. And we began earlier in the morning about looking about how that looks at the home and how we begin that mission for the church and the home. But what I want to talk about uh, this afternoon flows from that. Since it is the church's mission to make disciples, then I think it's important for us as the church and as leaders in the church to help foster a culture of disciple making. And so the goal for this session is to show discipling as a culture that should be what it looks like as a church where deliberate love and spiritual care for one another is happening where God's word builds up the church and makes the gospel visible to all. So what what do we mean by discipleship? Well, in introduction... Everything that the church does, everything that you do, everything that your pastor does, all of the, the emphasis and programs the church does should be about disciple making. Even those corporate things that we are commanded to do in scripture that are the pattern of the local church, like worshiping together, singing songs, praying, all of those things should be pushing the church to help us be disciples and help us make disciples. All of that is true. Uh, but what I want us to consider um, now is to think in terms of discipling as particularly individual relationships. Individual relationships where intentional encouragement is happening and the training of disciples are happening on the basis of deliberate and loving relationships. And these loving relationships are mentioned in John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, open it to John chapter 15. I want to read uh, a portion of this chapter beginning in verse 9 and we'll finish in verse 17. John 15 verse 9 through 17. And then just look at some things there that uh, help show key components of what disciple making And what a disciple-making culture should look like. So John 15, starting in verse 9. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said, As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So Jesus is saying, what I'm telling you now, what I've been telling you, all of this I'm doing so that you will love one another. So that as disciples, your relationship will be defined as deliberately loving one another. Jesus goes on to describe here how he has loved his people and it implies that he's telling us how we should love one another. So I want to point out some key com- components that disciple making um, looks like that will help foster a culture where disciple making happens. From these uh, p- these verses, we see that Christ's love was characterized in at least four ways in these verses. One is his love was intentional, his love was relational, his love was purposeful. And his love was normal. And those are the things we're going to see that should mark our disciple making as it reflects Christ's love towards us. So number one, I want you to see that disciple making is intentional. He says in verse 16, the beginning of that verse, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You notice here that Jesus didn't just stumble across the disciples. He didn't, you know, it wasn't something that sort of he was wandering around and just sort of ran into them. What he is telling his disciples is that he took loving initiative to disciple them. He chose them, meaning that Christ-like love is not passive. It is taking the initiative to engage somebody in a relationship where you love them and it benefits their own spiritual good. So the way that Jesus, in the message of the gospel, the way he relates to his people, should characterize the way we disciple other people. It should characterize the culture, the atmosphere of the gathered church and as they relate to one another in a a community. And so if we seek to love others, it means that we'll take some kind of similar initiative. Disciple making won't happen, not the kind that is demonstrating Christ's love for his people, if there isn't an initiative that his people take. So the second thing I want you to see is this. Disciple making is relational. As the Father has loved me, he says in verse 9, so have I loved you. And then later in verse 15, and I have called you friends. Jesus' discipling uh, became loving friendships. That's so important. So he comes and he picks out Men that he's going to spend time with and take the initiative to disciple them. And that relationship, as he's discipling them, turned into loving friendships. That was the, the, the way that this relationship was best defined. It's interesting, as you look, this just demonstrates the character of God. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, God is not simply known as a God who just reveals himself, but he's also a God who is constantly, intimately seeking to have a relationship with people. And so when he calls us to demonstrate his love to the world, what that means is if we're going to demonstrate Christ-like love to the world, then it should be reflected in our relationship with those people that we're impacting. And it should look like a loving friendship. 
what this means is that if you have a culture of disciple making, then you cannot see your students in your student ministry or the members of your church as projects, which can sometimes unintentionally happen. And, and you can't simply have the master-student relationship, which can kind of happen, especially in youth ministries, when those you're seeking to disciple are, uh, on a mature level, uh, they're, they're, you know, some of them... I, I work under the, the mindset that Scripture teaches that adulthood is when somebody turns around 12 years old. Now, that doesn't mean they act like adults, but you, you kind of see that as a pattern in Scripture... Um, you know, you see Jesus's life where uh, you have record of his life up until he's about 12. We don't really know how old he, old he was when he was separated from his parents and was found uh, with the teachers in the, in the temple area. And his parents had left on a trip. But then you don't see anything about Jesus again until he's 30. You see that kind of in David's life where David is a young boy when he uh, knocks down Goliath, but he doesn't become a king until he's 30. Jesus doesn't take on his earthly ministry until he's 30. You kind of see three stages of life. You see childhood up until about 12 or 13. You see this young adulthood, and then you see an advanced adulthood. And if you think in those terms, you know, you think about pop psychology, adolescence uh, is, a, is a term that was only created in the last 120 years. Nobody even knew what adolescence was. And what adolescence became was this extended childhood where, who knows, you know, people who maybe followers of Freud would say to 12-year-olds, you know, don't grow up too quickly. Why don't you stay a kid and eliminate responsibilities as an adult for a longer period of time because you have your whole life to be an adult. And so begin to delay responsibility. And it stole, which is a very good principle that had been done throughout cultures throughout the world for ages, which was when somebody turns 12 or 13, they sort of enter into manhood and you celebrate that. And now you begin to help that person become an adult, learn responsibility, uh, to be challenged to high standards of living. And so uh, in student ministry, you're kind of there. You've got you've got young adults. I mean, their bodies are now changing so that they can uh, do things that adults can do. And but you also have the world trying to keep them as much psychologically as children as possible. So the danger is you kind of treat them as kids. But my challenge to you is you can't do that if you're going to develop a culture. You have to be challenged to have a loving relationship and friendship with them. And so for some, that's going to be easier than for others. But uh, this would reflect Christ's love for us and is reflected in a disciple-making culture. Um, <clears throat> so we should pour out our very lives for those we're discipling uh, because that's what Christ did for us. As I have loved you, or as the Father has loved me, so I loved you. There's an interesting passage, um, you know, when you think about it, is he implying that we should then love the way he loves? In 1 John three sixteen. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, in one sense, he's pointing to the sacrificial or substitutional atonement that Jesus supplied for all of his believers. I mean, and he died, and by his death, when we believe, we're justified by our faith and declared righteous by God. 
And none of us can do that. We can't do that in our ministry. Nobody's going to go die for anybody and provide a way for heaven to them. So we can't mimic Jesus in that sense. But there's a deeper sense in which he's not just talking about the atonement when he says Jesus laid down his life. So in 1 John 3.16, if he's saying that this simply means Jesus laid down his life for us, that simply means dying on the cross, then it's a little bit crazy for him to say, and we ought to die on the cross for others too. That wouldn't make sense. He, he means more. He's pointing to the relationship that we should have in discipling others in the same way he had that relationship as he discipled his disciples. And so it's important that our disciple making not only be intentional, but that we understand the relational aspect. That it's deliberate, loving other people for spiritual good. The third characteristic we see is disciple making is not only intentional and relational, but it's purposeful. And there's two things I want to point out in its purpose uh, in this passage. The first purpose is that we see God's glory through their joy in the gospel. So when you're when you're developing a a disciple-making culture, what it looks like is relationships that are deliberate and loving with the intention of producing joy in the person that you are um, engaging so that they find joy in the gospel. Where the grace of God that He laid down His life on the cross, died for us, so that if we, we by faith believe in Him by faith, we would have all the benefits that Jesus had with, with the Father. We'd be treated as righteous. And our sins would be um, done away with. They would be forgiven forever. That should produce joy in those that we're discipling. And we see that in verse 11 where he says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So there was, a, there was an agenda, a purpose in discipling for Jesus as he was discipling others where he hoped that this discipling produced joy in the people that he was pursuing. So caring for others and purposely helping them to grow in grace is our goal. And uh, it may be hard work, but it is wonderful work. Think about the, uh, the, the difficulty of discipling. It's, it's not easy. We try to make it easy. What we see here is it's not schedules and programs and systems. But it's a lifestyle that's selfless and sacrificial. But the goal is that you're producing joy in those who are getting the gospel through your loving them intentionally and deliberately. And that is awesome. There's nothing better. And so, according to Christ, disciple-making is a joy-producing work. That's the purpose. But there's a second purpose that I want to point out. And that is that your, your aim in disciple-making is... For the spiritual good of your friend. And this is important to understand it this way because it takes a lot of pressure off. Uh, when we define discipleship the way it is being um, uh, illustrated by Jesus in this passage, it'll free people up to develop this culture. When they realize that is the simple goal of disciple making is that I would relate to a person in a deliberate and loving way where they would find joy in the gospel and that I would be doing a spirit, something spiritually good for them. That's, that's the goal. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that that can happen, but that's the goal. And we see that in verse 16. When Jesus said at the, uh, in the middle of that verse, he said, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide, that your fruit should last. So the purpose, as he's talking to the disciples, the purpose of the agenda that he had and the way he related to them was that they would bear fruit that would last. And that's exactly the way disciple-making should look like in our churches and in our lives. That's, that's the goal. And so Christ had something uh, in mind here other than their joy. He had that they would bear fruit for the glory of God. That was, their, that was his hope. And his love was, was not merely sentimental. And so when he says, I have loved you the way the, uh, the way the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he's not thinking sentimental, which is probably what a lot of people go to right away. His love was a, a selfless, sacrificial, intentional relationship with other people that sought to produce joy in them as they applied the gospel to their own lives and it did some sort of spiritual good by producing fruit in their lives. So if we love one another as Christ has loved uh, us, we will at least have the same agenda that he had. So disciple-making, we see, according to Jesus, is intentional, it's relational, and it's purposeful. And the fourth thing I want you to see here is this, that disciple-making is normal. So it's, it's, it's significant in some sense, but it's normal. It should be something that we see in the lives of all Christians. And so we see in verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What Jesus is saying here is that he's making this kind of loving discipling his basic command for all people. The Great Commission is a basic command from God to all people to love one another this way. And this is what discipleship is. Meaning this should be normal for all Christians where we are discipling one another in a lifestyle, in a culture, whatever word you want to use it. That we should see this as normal in our lives. We see it throughout Scripture, laying it out this way. For instance, in Hebrews 3.13, the writer of Hebrews says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We think of exhortation sometimes, I don't know about you, but it's sometimes thought of as like that act of standing up and, and encouraging one another with the word. So, Sometimes people can think of this as uh, something that's only done from the pulpit or some official teaching. But that's not what he means here. You can't do that every day. And, and in their time, you didn't see where it was just constant, always meeting together, having worship services every day where somebody stood up and sort of did a, um, an information transfer type situation. Simply implied here is this is something normal that should be done by Every Christian, every disciple should be doing this. And if it's not being done, the danger is that we'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's so important that the Great Commission become a culture of discipling in our lives. Because there's no way going to church one day a week or going to your youth meeting one day a week and hearing the message that the youth pastor or pastor has prepared. There's no way that's going to be adequate enough to produce ongoing, God-glorifying joy in the lives of Christians and protect them from the temptations of sin and the hardness of sin. There's no way. It has to be an everyday, all-the-time cycle of this kind of discipleship. One that is intentional and relational and purposeful. That's why it's 
I started with uh, home discipleship this morning, family discipleship. Because it's, it's our opportunity. What we're talking about here is building cycles of, of time in our life when we're relating to other people that is centered around the Word of God. And the more cycles that we develop the, that are impacting my life as I use the Bible to help other people see the gospel and, and have the joy that comes with knowing Christ be full in them, the more I can do that, the better it'll be for me and the more that I will be able to be um, uh, more successful in making disciples and, and remaining a disciple. So if, I'm, if I've built a system in my house where on a regular basis I'm looking for opportunities to open the Bible and to hear it and to let that be a relationship. I mean, no program. Sometimes we're like, give me a book, give me a, a list of questions. If you just read the Bible on a regular basis and talk about it with others, it's that normal. And then you, you might have a friend you meet with dur- during the week and there's another normal, you know, and, and if you have more of these, I, I, I was challenging my 14-year-old daughter as she went off to the ninth grade this year and I, they, they started last week and I said um, yeah they started Monday and I said let's think about like a goal for ninth grade Cassidy is a, a she's a believer and, and she, God saved her at a, at a younger age and she's always had this heart for missions and you know so I said well you know what would it look like you know at the end of the ninth grade if by your influence in school um Four or five, six kids were meeting together on a regular basis in one-to-one groups or one-to-two groups where they were simply reading the Bible. And I challenged her. I said, what if you gave up one lunch a week? Because, see, this kind of discipleship, is, it's, it's selfless. The reason we don't see this often in our culture is because, I, I mean, I'm saying this about myself, is that we are selfish. We want, and the reason that we want to put it on a calendar is selfish sometimes because we want to, we want to break away some time for me. And what we see in, in Jesus' model throughout the Gospels, there was never me time for Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus never did things, but he always brought people along with him. So what this would look like is, you know, I got to go to the grocery store for, uh, for some, some of you, Say some of you moms go in the grocery store, invite another lady to go grocery shopping with you. And develop a time where you're talking about the word. Or, or some of you guys got Saturday afternoon off and you need to go take your kids to the playground. Bring another young guy with you. And do life while you're bringing people into that cycle and you're, you're talking about the word and encouraging them. Otherwise, what we're going to do is say, discipleship can only happen on Wednesday night when I put it on my calendar and on Sunday morning or Sunday night or whatever it is. And that is not what's modeled here when we talk about normal as an attribute of disciple making. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one, build one another up just as you are doing. And you see it throughout Scripture, those one another passages. When do those happen? They should happen as we go about our life. They can't just happen in the corporate functions of the church when we all gather together. They need to happen then, and that's super important. Super important. And special. Things that happen in those meetings can't happen at any other time. So people who skip them are missing out because they're not going to get what God's going to give the church. God, you know, God didn't say in Hebrews ten twenty five uh, to not neglect the gathering with one another because He just wanted to set another rule for us so that we don't so we have good attendance at church. 
No, he meant that there's something special that happens when the people of God gather together and the word of God is declared to them. You're not going to get that anywhere else. So that's important. This isn't undermining that. That's important. That was bad. But it's not sufficient. And so that's what we see here, is that it's so important that we develop, foster a culture of disciple-making. And so we see a main concern in the New Testament that all the Christians in the various churches were supposed to be active and exhorting one another with the Word of God or encouraging one another in their faith. And this happens with the aim of this principle of one another in, in Scripture that's supposed to be normal. And so this is what has characterized the church for two millennium, having this culture. But it seems like today it is much more difficult for this to be a characteristic. So here's some things to think about as you consider what would it take for me to go back to whatever my context of ministry is and start to help push this to become more. I mean, so that what happens is disciple making relationships are initiated not by a staff member or not by a volunteer, somebody with a title, but initiated by those who are part of your ministry where it's just going on all the time. And as new people come in, they are, they are being pursued because they see from the Word of God that this is what disciple-making is. That taking an initiative is a key component to being a disciple-maker. And you can't be a disciple and not be a disciple-maker. And so when you're, when you're discipling your disciples, they need to know that a key component, if they're going to be disciple-makers, is that they've got to be looking for taking the initiative. And that's, that's so important for us as we're teaching students to raise up that next generation to not just be satisfied with consumerism church where they just go and look for a church that meets their needs and they, kinda, they just kind of go plug in for a Sunday or a Wednesday and they plug out. But that is not what God's calling the church to. God's calling us to live a life where we're making disciples and it's, it's intentional and relational, purposeful, and normal. And so we should want this. We should want to create a culture where it's normal for our people to, out of love for Christ and one another, take the initiative and build relationships with one another. Or we should be training parents and, 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 and volunteers to do this. So what should I do? That could be a question. What should I do in a disciple-making relationship? The most significant aspect of discipling is not what you do or when you meet, but it's that you do something and that it involves biblical truth. That'll help so much for people to get. It's not so much, you know, everybody has a way of doing it and and there's so many ways you can do it, but that's not the important thing. Or when to do it, that's not the important thing. That, That even applies to family worship. A lot of people had questions about that. It's not so much what you do or when you do it, but that you're meeting together at some point that suits you and the people in your home or the people you're discipling, and it involves biblical truth. So consider some of these ideas. Number one, some people get together once a week and they talk about the sermon that they heard Sunday morning. I encourage this simply because um, sometimes we don't get everything that has been taught. I mean, uh, for instance, the stuff Rob just gave us, you know, you take notes just listening for the 30 minutes or 36 minutes and 58 seconds that he took um, or whatever it was that you were keeping track of. I was trying to figure out how you knew the seconds. I'm not, I don't even see seconds up there. 
But, um, you know, to go back and like that's something you guys could do with your team if you're here with the team is go back and take the notes from one of these sessions and meet up sometime during lunch, breakfast, dinner, sometime this week and discuss what he taught from the word and how that would apply, how you could take those principles and apply them to your life. Some people do that. Uh, Some people read a book and they go chapter by chapter, a book that helps you look at the word and understand it and to meditate on it. And then you meet together and you talk about that book. Some people outline a book of the Bible and then you meet together on a regular basis to compare your outline. So, hey, let's, uh, you know, you go up to somebody and say, would you, uh, would you want to read the book of Mark and, and outline it together? And, uh, and let's start with chapter one. Let's outline it and then we'll meet for lunch and we'll walk through and compare our outlines. What an incredible time of learning that would be. A way to understand the word and to exhort one another in the, in, in, with biblical truth. Some people just simply attend a Bible study together and then find some time later to meet and talk about its application. So in our church, we're starting something called uh, Core Seminars. We stole it from another church, and they're just different Bible studies, and we're going to tell our people to go through all of these studies, different topics, and once you're done in three years, go through them again and bring people with you. And just get into the habit of constantly going to Bible studies and thinking not just as a Bible study is what's in it for me, but how can I go to this and multitask and use this as a tool to make disciples? Invite somebody to come with me. Uh, Some regularly invite an unmarried member of their church to come to their house to observe how a married Christian married couple behaves or, or simply just to observe how you do family devotions. Some of the most powerful, actually the most powerful influences I've ever had is just including people to come have dinner with my family and then inviting them to stay and have family worship with us. And not even realize it. And then years later have people say, you know, this is, this is like I remember so many times people just simply that never taught them, never showed them from the word. It was a responsibility. Just simply invited them over, had family worship, asked them to join us. And I remember like I almost was tears in tears one day. I a guy came to me and said, hey, ever since I've been to your house for the last two years, we've been doing family worship. We never even had a conversation. He just simply saw it and he began to do it. So inviting people to your house to see you um, and, and to spend time with you in these important times. Some moms schedule play dates where during their time when the kids are playing, they're talking about uh, something that they went to together, whether it's church service, a sermon, a Sunday night talk what was taught during uh, Wednesday night, um, Sunday school, whatever that is. So these, these are some ideas. But just remember, it's not important exactly what you do. Simply decide to do stuff. What I've been doing lately is realizing I can do more discipling than I ever thought when I started thinking about this. I just invited a guy at church one day. He's been coming for two years. Uh, and he just seems to be disconnected all the time. And I finally just said, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? And he's like, sure. Let's just read for eight weeks. Let's read through the Gospel of Mark. He shows up at, I mean, he can barely read, functionally illiterate. And uh, the questions that he has, he's been in our church for two years. And I'm just amazed. And it's such a a refreshing time that we had together. And then I just turned around and invited one of his friends. And the three of us meet together and simply read the Bible together. There's no agenda. I don't have a a study book. I just simply, they let him ask me questions. And I can't, I just, it's, it's awesome. And these are cycles that you can just create in your, uh, in your life that if you can do this and start to work at it and then encourage other people to see that this, this is simply what Jesus did. Imagine what would happen if all of us were doing this, the kind of culture our church would create in disciple making. So 
Be creative, be flexible, but in everything be intentional uh, about loving one another the best you can so that you can do some spiritual good to them using biblical truth so that by the, the growing in grace, they would, their joy would be full. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the call that you have in our life. Help us not to be overwhelmed or discouraged. Help us to see that, that this is a way to live that will be a blessing to us and a blessing to the mission of the church. Because you've called us to go and make disciples. So as we go, Lord, help us to be more intentional, uh, more relational, more purposeful in our time together with people, and that this would be a normal part of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.